welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. My name is Giulio Altese, and today I'll be speaking to Christian Heganofer, who is a senior research associate at the School of Transitional Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. Previously, he was head of the Energy Climate and Resources Program and director of Energy Climate Houses at the Brussels-based Think Tank Center for the European Policy Studies. He remains at CEPS, Associate Senior Research Fellow to this day. He is visiting professor at Sciences Po and the College of Europe. Preceding his position at CEPS, he was director and owner of Impact as per L, a public affairs consulting group and for a brief spell work at the Ministry for Interior of Baden-Württemberg. So, today we'll be talking about the Emission Trading System of European Union, or EU-ETS. We'll talk about its history, current reforms and future prospects in the context of today's energy crisis. But before we start, it is maybe better to briefly touch on what the ETS actually is, so to not get lost during the episode. The ETS is what is usually called a cap-and-trade system. Basically, the European Union each year sets the total amount of certain greenhouse gases that can be emitted by the installation covered by the system, the cap. Within this limit, the installation buy or receive for free the rights to emit certain amounts of these greenhouse gases in the form of permits, what we call allowances. And importantly, the cap is then lowered every year so to assure a real reduction in the emission of the EU. Hello Christian, it's a pleasure having you with us today here. And let's just start. So I briefly explained in the introduction how the ETS works great line but just for the sake of clarity i wanted to ask you uh what is in practice an ets allowances uh, who has to buy it and what for what purpose and how you buy it also yeah i mean e- ets allowance stands for one ton of co2 emissions which is a sort of a property right comparable to a share or to money. So with this, you buy yourself a right. And in this case, you buy yourself the right to emit one ton of CO2. Uh, companies uh, need it to be in compliance with the law because for each ton of CO2, they need to surrender. That's mm. the technical term, a ton is an allowance. Uh, and also, we all of us uh, can use it as a financial uh, uh, asset. Uh, we can speculate with it. We can buy it and sell it whenever the price is higher. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm-hmm. So practically, we have a market that is perfectly integrated. It's basically a price on pollution, right? It's a price of uh, pollution. Some need it, uh, and the government uh, gives it out. And then all of us... Uh, can uh, work with it and keep it by sell it or bank it. Mm-hmm. Another instrument that is always is also very important for the functioning of the ETS is the market stability reserve. But it's something that is mainly out of a general public knowledge. So can you briefly explain to us what is it and how it works? Yeah, you you seem to be starting, uh, you know, from the back end. Um, the market stability reserve is essentially a mechanism to deal uh, with the supply to create uh, supply uh, flexibility uh, because demand uh, is uh, flexible. It depends on weather. It depends on economic uh, activity. It depends on, as we learn now, on the price of gas or global commodities. So there are ups and downs. But the supply, the allowances have been brought onto the market according a schedule which was uh, long set uh, before. And then we realized with the economic crisis, which was a dramatic uh, drop uh, in economic activity, that there are too many allowances uh, on the market uh, and therefore the market stability uh, reserve was uh, uh, introduced in order to adjust in case of extreme events, in case of... Uh, you know, special uh, occasions to take them, uh, take these allowances out again to keep the market uh, in balance, to avoid too high and to avoid too uh, low costs. Because one of the reasons the ETS was done is to create long-term predictability Mm -hmm. and nothing more uh, the economy or the investors hate more than volatility. 
Now, they can live with increasing prices, they can live with decreasing prices, but having uh, strong volatility is a really difficult one, and that was the reason why it was done. Mm-hmm. So it was a reaction to a problem of the system, and that is also one of the features of the ETS that is continually evolving and continually changing. I think that is one of the mainly most striking feature of the ETS. It's, it's a system that is open to be changed. Yeah, I mean, you need to imagine back in 2005 when it was done or when the discussion started in 2000, 2001, uh, this was uh, the first time worldwide Uh, that somebody put up something for CO2. And there was a big debate at the time. Is CO2 really a a pollutant that is suitable for that? Because before we used it for NOx and SO2, which had local impact but not a global impact. So was, there was a big uh, discussion there. And so you started to build it up simply and it gets over time more sophisticated. And that is one uh, of the reasons. Now, the discussion whether we should have a market stability reserve in the beginning uh, was already there. People said, look, you know, we're we talking really long term. There may be uh, changes in, in, in the, in the demand. Uh, but people said, no, no, we don't want that. And the reason was, and I think it was a good reason, uh, to avoid an overly uh, politicization mm-hmm. of it because you have to somehow decide how much you take in, how much you take out. And just imagine, We have an emergency summit of the European heads of governments and they're discussing how much they should withdraw, how much uh, they should keep or what the price should be. That was meant to be avoided. And therefore, the market stability reserve was a sort of a mechanics. Uh, once decided, it works its own way without much political interference. Mm-hmm. And you already touched it that you were in Brussels when in 2005 when the UETS first came into action. And you already touched on some of the criticalities of it, but were there any other problems that came up along the way during its creation? I mean, in, in the beginning, uh, it was uh, clear when it, it was set up uh, that uh, the, all the, the businesses in the ETS, they felt much more confident uh, that the cap and the allocation is done by member states, mm. which is a normal Uh, situation, you know your ministers, you know the language, uh, and these far away bureaucrats, uh, which you don't know, which you never met. Uh, there was a lot of reluctance actually to, to, to give them too much, uh, power. So therefore, initially, the allocation and the cap setting was done nationally. Guess what? You know, <laughs> it was a, a mess. Uh, completely different rules in some countries you got for the exactly same technology zero allowances for the other uh, you got 80% or 100% or even more uh, and also the cap was too, too, too big and uh, too high etc etc so that was then changed after three years so through some internal procedures with the explicit agreement of the member states they said look we cannot continue like this we need to do something else uh, then There was the issue of uh, free allocation uh, to business, which is in a way a bribe. You had to pay uh, free allocation to, 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 to power sector, I should say, uh, which was the price to pay for them to accept it. And that was then also replaced by auctioning. And the business uh, free allocation was put on the basis of benchmarks, uh, which then was again an innovative instruments. We never had used benchmark. Nobody in the world used benchmark for very sophisticated industrial processes. And they could keep it to something more than 30 uh, benchmarks uh, for the whole sectors. And that is uh, quite impressive. So these were really the main changes in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the beginning of ETS. And, but as I said, and as we discussed before, is a system that is always changing. And in 2021, the European Commission has set forward to a new entire phase of the ETS. It's called the fourth phase of the ETS, and it has to come with the Fit for 55 packages, which is the broader goal of the Union to reach carbon neutrality within the system, within the European Union. Uh, but what is the role of the ETS in this broader goal of carbon neutrality, and what is, in particular, this fourth phase about? Yeah, the... The, the role of the ETS has slightly changed when you follow the European Commission's or the EU's own language. 
in the beginning it was the flagship uh, and or the cornerstone now it's a central element uh, of the of the EU uh, climate policy you know that is a, if if the flagship that means sooner or later everything uh, gets into this but a central element people understood it's an important element but there are many other policies that are required renewables energy efficiency and i i could uh, uh, go on uh, like this because the ETS uh, target tends to be or has always been and will be also in the future uh, much uh, more ambitious uh, than the other sectors. Uh, the ETS uh, share of emissions was going down, is going down uh, quite quite rapidly uh, because, for example, for the fit for 55, the 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 the, the ETS. Uh, target uh, is foreseen to be 61%, not 55 mm-hmm. uh, So there's always a, a bit more. Now, uh, therefore, uh, it's it's becoming clear you would like over time to see to other sectors to gradually to integrate because otherwise the ETS sector at some stage is non-existent or is very, very uh, small. But, you know, we can discuss this later. Now, what the Fit for 55 did, first of all, it made a sort of a technical uh, adjustment uh, and updating uh, from the previous target. You know, the previous target uh, was forty uh, percent uh, originally. So now we are to minus fifty percent or fifty percent, fifty-five percent reductions. Mm-hmm. So you need to adjust the ETS on that trajectory. That means first of all, uh, you need to set this uh, new target. How much should the ETS? contribute 61 percent uh, this proposal is and that also means that you need to adjust the so-called linear reduction mm-hmm. factor which is enshrined in law saying at in the will be saying in the future that each year the emission should be reduced by 4.2 percent mm-hmm. the previous linear reduction uh, factor was uh, 2.2 so that was not sufficient uh, for this, so first of all, you need to adjust the ETS with its, which is objectives to the new uh, political uh, objective. Then the second part, uh, I should say, yeah, maybe it's it's not uh, what has been done, what has not been uh, proposed. Beyond that, the Commission said, look, uh, let's be, you know, let's be, you know, moderate. Don't open the Pandora's box mm. because once you open one element then you open everything and then suddenly we have another debate a very fundamental debate about the the ETS huh? but one thing is proposed as you all know it's the the new ETS including uh, transport and building uh, which is politically very very sensitive certainly in this country in in France where we had the uh, gilet jaune uh, and France is also quite, uh, quite skeptical about it. Uh, but it's not integrated in the ETS, at least not now. It would be a separate, uh, instrument being side by side by the current ETS. So it would be a second ETS eventually, maybe 2030, being integrated into the main ETS. Another talking point that always is being raised when we talk about emission trading system and carbon reduction is the theme of carbon leakage. But what exactly is carbon leakage? Yeah, uh, it's a good question you're asking. It's relatively simple. uh, And it basically says if in the EU we put a price on carbon, then the costs of our industry, which is fairly efficient uh, compared to others, on average, I should, should say, uh, if you put a price on carbon of our industry, they may become uncompetitive and they, their products will be substituted by imports uh, by less efficient because outside Europe there is no uh, carbon policy. And this is something that's bad for the environment and therefore it should be, uh, it should be stopped. Uh, so it's, it's fairly simple. And you see, we talk about carbon leakage, which is sort of the environmental element. It's if this happens, it's bad for the environment. And, and the reason why we talk about carbon leakage is because of WTO, the World Trade Organization and the whole uh, trade regime. 
under that trade regime carbon leakage is a a, a reason you know to put measures uh, competitiveness which is actually what most of the discussions are uh, competitiveness of industry is not a legitimate objective that can be addressed by uh, the WTO but of course there is always this discussion about carbon leakage but we also talk about can our industry remain competitive in the future with the EU carbon policy which in this case is the ETS with its CO2 price of whatever the CO2 uh, price is. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important point because one of the issues that the European Union has to address is to remain competitive on the global stage and you have gradually said so that at the WTO level there is a freeze and the Union is not really seeing a progress in the inclusion of carbon pricing at the global level so it's kind of moving it seems that it's kind of moving along on its own way and i say this because now there is a huge talking point about CBAM, which is a carbon border adjusting mechanism CBAM, just to be clear is this provision of having a, your border a barrier to borders is saying that you have to play this you have to pay for your product the same carbon price the companies in europe are facing is presented as a way to end both the issue of carbon leakage and free allowances, uh, also as a new level of climate leadership in the EU. But uh, what is in practice uh, CBEM and what is it, when is it expected to be implemented? And are there any criticalities or something that could go wrong with it? Yeah. Uh, now, first of all, it's, it's, there is a lot of discussion and the CBEM for a very long time uh, has been, you know, seen the way you wanted to see it. Huh? But now we have a proposal. By the way, we have now an agreement in principle that the EU will go ahead with it. That was done just a few days ago. Uh, so we, we know now more or less, uh, what is uh, going to happen there. Uh, it was already clear for a very long time. If you have a relatively high carbon price, of course, it has an impact on the costs, and then carbon leakage is an issue. Now, so in in a sense, you want that CBAM uh, to make sure that those importing into Europe will have to have the same carbon uh, costs as our European industry. So leveling uh, the playing field for import, uh, and that addresses carbon leakage. But there is. A second part, which over time will become much, much more uh, important, and then is uh, the CBAM is also a tool to enable investment in new breakthrough technologies, innovation in innovative breakthrough technologies, for example, for green steel, green cement, uh, green uh, chemicals, uh, you know, climate neutral chemicals. These technologies exist in principle. They are not yet at industrial scale, uh, but we know if we want to meet uh, the climate aspirations of under the Paris Agreement, we will need to replace the current uh, materials, which are efficient but high carbon, with climate neutral new materials, you know, green steel, uh, green cement, etc. And in order to give an incentive to, to companies to invest in these, you need to make sure uh, that these investments initially, which are much, much higher in terms of costs than the, the imports or, or traditional high carbon uh, materials, in order to, to give an incentive that you really do these investments, we talk about billions of investment, you need to somehow protect these investments uh, that they can uh, generate revenues, otherwise nobody is going to do that. Now, the important part is, now we have the technologies, now they will be piled as pilot projects, they will be then scaled up, and by around 2030, these technologies will need to be in such a position that they can start competing on the market with a carbon price of 50, 60. Uh, uh, but in order to get there, you now need to invest in them uh, to bring the cost down, as we have seen in renewables, to understand how these technologies work, to have competition between different solutions. If we don't start now, uh, then by 2030 they won't be available, and then it's virtually impossible that we will be able to meet 
the climate uh, aspirations under the Paris Agreement or uh, by the EU. Mm. Now, an important uh, part in in this is as well uh, that this is an this this CBAM is an issue which has been many books. We did one in 2010. Mm. We were a little bit early at the time. We were laughed at, uh, but. There is a, the CBAM is something which is well understood in the US. It's well understood in China. It's well understood in, uh, Japan because they all face the same situation. They're all trying to invest in climate neutral technologies. And unless you have the same sort of, uh, situation like the CBAM is now generating in the EU, it won't happen in these countries either. Huh? So I would expect that the CBAM will become part of the global climate architecture mm-hmm. and it has been introduced uh, by the EU in such a way if it's introduced in a gradual way step by step you enlarge it you see whether it works too complicated then I think it can really uh, get traction uh, also internationally mm-hmm. and so kind of protective measure by you raising the point that actually is also empowering the transition but another issue that is always raised together with CBAM is the issue of free allowances because CBAM is projected as a way to end the end out of free allowances in the market but and free allowances as an issue has always been one of the most critic point of the uh, ETS but they are still present in the current reform And is this a reason that has been made for public acceptability or free allowances are really now that fundamental for the functioning of the ETS? They are not fundamental for the functioning of the ETS, but they are fundamental for European industry to mm-hmm. stay uh, competitive. Huh? So, so that's the, the simple uh, situation. Uh, but let me just go maybe one step further uh, to link it to the CBAM, uh, where it's, of course, uh, coming from. Uh, there is a lot of international interest or acceptance of the CBAM because they see the CBAM as a precondition for the free uh, allowances uh, to be to be phased out. Huh? And uh, impo- that will be a very fundamental point to phase out the free allocation uh, because without that, carbon costs which are supposed to come through the carbon price the co2 price will not be introduced uh, in our product prices uh? mm-hmm. we are not paying the full carbon costs therefore the market doesn't react to these things if we are saying look yes green steel should be more expensive but by the way we subsidize it uh, not green steel steel should be more expensive because it has a high carbon footprint but then we subsidize that carbon footprint and of course the consumers don't really care they don't see it in the market should i buy a higher uh, carbon uh, or should i buy a lower carbon uh, product because they have the same price so the this the free allocation is hindering the full carbon price pass through uh, and the sebum Uh, in fact, uh, would enable that, and that's why it's foreseen. The CBAM comes in in 2026, that's that's the idea. By that time, we learn how it works. It's a complicated instrument, but also we can tell how our partners how this works. And then after that, there will be a very, very rapid phase-out. I'm not rapid, but there will be a phase-out of free allocation. And as the free allocation is phased out, we as consumer will have to pay the full carbon uh costs uh you know through uh which are brought up by by the ETS. So that's a very, very fundamental point if we want to make progress in the material side, which means green steel, green cement, etc. etc. As I said uh before. Mm-hmm. You just raised a very important point that is the issue of public acceptability of higher prices is something that we always talk about with the ETS in the sense that we're already experiencing higher prices for energy and the ETS is having an impact but as you said it's not having its full impact uh, but in the last few years we have witnessed an incredible rise in the market price of allowances in the sense that we have passed from the very low prices to 
prices of now around 80 mm. euros for a ton of CO2. And where this increase is coming from? And is it this partly causing the inflation, the general inflation that we are witnessing? Or is there no correlation? I mean, it's on the inflation, the, the greenflation, as it's called, mm. uh, it's a little bit uh, too early uh, to say, but it normally you would expect that over time as our carbon costs get priced in fully in our product you will have an, an impact uh, uh, now how this impact compares to the current high oil and gas prices is always difficult to judge uh, but over time uh, you know oil and gas will be phased down that means the, the 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 other products where there is carbon in there will play a bigger role when we measure our alternatives or the cost of renewable el electricity, uh, for for example. Huh? Now, where does the inflation come from? I mean, it's a, a lot of it is coming from from energy, or most of it is is coming uh, from energy. Uh, we have seen record uh, gas prices. They have sometimes been three times higher uh, than uh, before, than average prices before. So that's a very traumatic uh, situation. We also saw very high uh, CO2 prices. Part of it is, of course, linked to the increase of the EU target to 55%. Uh, it's That's the, the market fundamental. See this, we have a more ambitious target. That means our CO2 prices uh, will go up. That's logic. Most people, most calculations I have seen assume that the minus 55% target would lead to a CO2 price of around 60 or maybe 70, something around that order. Certainly not to almost 100 where we have been. But that 100 or high prices came simply by the fact that we had very, very high gas prices. What did that mean? This means the gas could not would was not burned any longer in power uh, because it was so uh, expensive. One of my former colleagues uh, at SAPS, uh, also he was a Sciences Po student, uh, and the energy masters is now in the International Energy Agency, spoke of unburnable gas. Mm. Gas was too expensive. So what happened? Uh, people burning coal, and that means that those burning this coal, which was unforeseen, had to buy allowances the on the normal level of coal burning the companies have hatched they have enough allowances for the next few years they know we will need that much but suddenly we burn much more which meant uh, those who had now to start again their coal plants had to buy additional allowances and as you have it very often in such markets there is a bit of an overshoot huh? hmm. people get nervous will there be enough will it go higher so i'm better buy a lot just to be sure uh, and then you saw uh, the collapse, uh, you know, once uh, everybody had probably enough bought uh, to, to be hedged. Huh? Uh, but uh, that was just how the market uh, functions that is based on uh, the, the, the fundamentals. There was a discussion, as you know, whether there is speculation or excessive mm. uh, speculation so far. Uh, you know, the evidence is, is very weak or non-existent uh, that this is the case. Now, obviously, in every market, you have speculation. Me, as a market participant, I can buy anything I wish. And if I have enough money, I buy enormous amount. And if then, I could uh, manipulate the market. But there was really no sign that there was, uh, you know, strategic buying uh, to manipulate uh, the market. But you have to see that uh, politicians are nervous. Mm. Uh, I mean, incredibly high uh, prices. And uh, what then is the reflex of politicians? You say something. Uh, <laughs> you make a lot of noise, uh, even if it uh, is not right. But you want to show I'm uh, in control. So a lot of things have been said which were based on no evidence uh, mm -hmm. whatsoever. There was a European Council, uh, I think the, the the one in October, where two prime ministers said the high energy prices are due to the ETS price, uh, which was, uh, you know, just wrong, plain wrong, uh, fake, fake news. Uh, and the Polish government still have ads 
uh, in running on billboards saying the ETS uh, uh, is responsible for uh, the higher energy prices. Uh, the Spanish government said we need to change the market design of electricity uh, because the electricity price is set by the marginal uh, fuel, which is very often gas. Uh, that has they have said that in uh, in September, and they haven't come up with the idea of how to adjust that. And we're still discussing it based on nothing really. Mm -hmm. So this spike in prices that now has little come off, uh, it's came down a little, but it's still present. We're still trailing above the sixty euros. We're still around eighty euros. Yeah, today we are. I think around yeah, almost 80. almost eighty, uh, slightly yeah. below eighty, unless mm -hmm. I have missed the latest uh, price spike uh, <laughs> the last half an hour. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the, well, in general, it was driven by this return to coal due to the current crisis, and as you said, there is a lot of freeze of freaking out about the ETS and higher prices in the current crisis, and one of the main issue of the current crisis that many countries even more than before mm -hmm. that we see earlier are returning to coal or has started speaking return to coal Italy for example uh, as a solution to alleviate the supply crisis but this as we've seen will drive up ETS prices again uh, but if yes should we consider maybe suspending the ETS in times of energy prices to have not sp high spike in prices I mean, what would it help uh it wouldn't do anything to our gas prices yes. uh, the gas prices will still remain high uh so we will have to pay the full prices it might uh it 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 uh, it will not it will do something to electricity prices but again uh, the electricity price is really driven by the gas price And uh, at the maximum, the ETS price may be 15, 20, 25%, not more. It's really the rest is the gas price. So I don't see it be very logical uh, to suspend the ETS when the cause is uh, the gas prices. Huh? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and at the moment, we are at around uh, 80%. Which is something which is more or less uh, covered uh, by the market uh, fundamentals. Uh, of course, there is a, a risk premium to be paid. Uh, we don't know how long we still have gas, Russian gas in Europe, uh, which will mean gas prices go even higher up or we're burning uh, more coal. So I would expect those uh, utilities that expect to having to burn more coal are buying now so i i don't see anything uh really uh what a suspension uh, would help uh now what can governments do in such a situation uh yes uh, compensation vulnerable uh vulnerable customers uh, that's what they're doing probably a bit excessively i i would imagine <laughs> that's the normal situation especially in countries uh, where you have elections uh, like in france um uh, but we also should just to be aware that we in the eu we put in place an electricity market very competitive we put in place a gas market very competitive We made a political choice uh, to put a CO2 market into operation. Our oil is provided competitively uh, and most other products are provided competi uh, competitively based on the market. So market prices go up and down. It doesn't work that if they are low, you like them. And if they are high, you don't like them. Huh? And most important, what we really... Uh, which is not discussed to my big uh, regret, is just imagine we have uh, a gas shortfall huh, of mm. 150, 60 BCM, which is the Russian, uh, the Russian uh, supply. It can happen. Huh? It might happen very fast, irrespective of the EU takes a decision. Now that the ruble, you have to pay in ruble, we don't know, really know what this means. Now, this kind of shortfall, you only get... Uh, 
coped with if there is a demand reduction. Huh? And if you do basic calculations, what we know in terms of elasticities, uh, you know, these high prices lead to demand reduction of around 15%, uh, perhaps a bit more. Uh, then, you know, this whole short, short, uh, uh, cut or the short supply could actually be handled. Uh, hmm. If you look at the global market, uh, which is the Asian European market is about 1,200 BCM. If you take 15% of high prices up, then you're almost around 150 BCM, which is actually what the Russian supply is. Mm -hmm. So actually the ETS could function as a way to also answer the crisis. So rising prices mean lower demand, so it could actually adjust. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it will, I mean, prices will be important uh, in this and they give signals also for for investment. Now, I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, like a extreme uh, economist, but price signals are very, very important. And it's clear that vulnerable uh, customers or people that cannot afford need to be compensated. I mean, that's without any any question. And there may be also state aid required for, for industry, etc., etc. Now, that's understood. But if you really mute the, the price signal, uh, you will you will get rationing. Huh? You will get inflation. Really uh, big inflation. We have learned that in the 1970s with the oil uh, crisis, and you will also uh, see a short fall in investment because people say, okay, they keep changing. Uh, no, they keep changing the rules of the market. Once I make money, <laughs> you know that's not really a good market to be in. Huh? So you will the, the investor confidence will get a, a big hit as well. Huh? So you should really think very very carefully what uh, intended or unintended consequences you will have. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the big unintended consequences that everybody wants to stay away is having a total downfall of public acceptance for any type of carbon pricing mechanism due to perceived higher prices due to drive driven by such a system and yeah, we but, have but to just yeah but no absolutely right there is big worries huh? mm. if prices are above 100 the the acceptability goes down huh? uh, that's clear but uh, at the moment we are at around 80 and that is in line more or less mm with what the minus 55% target tells us. And that has been adopted by all 27 member states. I mean, it's a political decision by the member states. And then you should not be surprised that the market reacts to this. Uh, do you think that we had talked before about the, the idea of introducing building and transport sector among the covered sector by the EU ETS, but given the current crisis and the huge that is, these higher energy prices are having on public acceptance, not even of the ETS itself, but of general public acceptance of their politicians, uh, do you think it's a likely scenario that this will go forth, or are we probably seeing a delay of such a provision? There has been uh, initially a number of member states were in favor and said, you know, we need to do this because uh, if we want to really come to a low carbon transition, all sectors somehow have to be involved. And a very uh, efficient way is to have at least a minimum carbon price for all of them. Uh, and that's the logic uh, behind it, that you cannot just have the carbon price in one part of the economy and not in the other. And the, the French government for 15 years has been arguing for this. We need really a carbon price signal across the sectors. There are many uh, carbon prices in many European and non-European countries for these sectors huh? uh, or CO2 taxes, uh, etc. So the, the logic is in a way clear. Now, the question is, as you said, you know, about is it the right moment? Uh, I guess there's never a right moment to put a, uh, to put a tax or <laughs> uh, a CO2 uh, price. But uh, the, those countries uh, that have been opposed to it, they have been asked, uh, so what are you going to do instead? 
you know, what are you doing with your heating sector? What is your alternative? Because if you don't have the ETS for transport and heating, our emissions will be higher. Now you go back to your national plan and tell us what are you going to do? Uh, and that probably means regulation. You're forbidding oil heating, you're forbidding gas heating. This is not much more popular, huh, I believe. And no, they so there seem to be coming around the idea, yeah, we don't like it. So what we are going to do, we, we are very critical and at the capital and say all these EU people, uh, they want to do that and we don't like it, but we could not do anything against it. So you see a typical reflex. You blame it afterwards on the, the EU, on the European Commission. Uh, while, you know, if you had to do it domestically, it would even be less popular. Huh? Anything you do on transport and heating, we call it uh, internally the family sector. <laughs> Everything you do with the family sector is highly unpopular, and that's why it's going to be pushed back, back, back. But at the moment, it's impossible to further delay it, and you will see the same situation happening with the agriculture sector. Huh? That's also will have big impacts on food prices. Uh, and again, governments will shy away to do something. But when you look at all the projections, uh, the agriculture sector will have to make a major contribution. So that's so I'm not suggesting you're putting it in the ETS. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah. I mean, that's the, one of the long problems of the EU, the, the clash between the, the Brussels and the state when it comes to very, una not unacceptable, but very problematic issues. There is only it's, this. It's, it's not a clash. It's sometimes just a, a projected mm -hmm. clash. It's a bit of the EU folklore. Huh? Uh, you can also say if we didn't invent the European Commission, as a scapegoat, uh, <laughs> we would have to invent it uh, very, very quickly. Uh, uh, and that's a bit part of the, the discussions. Um, if you overdo it, of course, then there is a, a real uh, assault on the EU institution and the, the, the support erodes. Uh, but to play that a little bit, I mean, that's what every, all the countries do. Huh? Taking the long picture, like the, the grand picture, disregarding the current crisis that is very important but looking at the overall system we are seeing a system with rising prices because free allowances are going to fade down and there is a reduction of the overall cap and that's its natural higher prices uh, do you see the issue of like a general movement of arising in the long term um yeah it's 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 a little bit how how this uh, the politicians uh, play it if they play too much on saying look these people in brussels uh, they screw our sector they they attack our farmer they take away your oil heating etc etc then in ill in the medium term there will be a falling support but uh, on the other hand, uh, when you look at polls almost everywhere, uh, you see that a lot of people uh, agree that climate change is a very serious issue, the number one issue that needs to be tackled. Uh, and if you want to move from a fossil-based industry, which is, you know, very mature infrastructure is there, uh, it has been there for a hundred years to a new one where you have to rebuild all the infrastructure. Uh, and then, of course, it will be, uh, come, uh, more expensive. Our energy uh, will become more expensive. That's understood. What you can do, uh, compensate the, the, the poor people. Uh, that's, uh, clear that is happening and should be happening. And the other thing you can do, is really to push uh, efficiency, energy efficiency, because if our unit price goes up, uh, then you can sort of compensate it somewhat uh, with having lower consumption. And that is why there is this massive drive to increase energy efficiency. We are not going to do energy efficiency, or we are not doing energy efficiency only because of reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, it would be cheaper possibility than this but to to reduce 
the overall consumption, which means less investment in infrastructure, which leads less, uh, you know, less windmills, uh, less solar panels, etc., etc., uh, and then therefore it becomes uh, cheaper. Huh? Yeah, and I think we are seeing at the level of the European Union the rise of the SDL, of leaving no one behind. There are now a big talking point of the social climate fund. Yes, yeah. another topic that is being raised together with bringing the ETS. Yeah, but 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 again, this is really in in this is really a national task. Mm-hmm. The social climate fund, the EU, leaving no one behind. It's really peanuts in terms of money. Huh? That's something which each uh, country needs to do itself in its own uh, fabric. The EU can help with a little bit here and there, but uh, the social climate fund is far too small. Huh? And when you talk about the Gilets jaunes, and uh, first of all, huh, Gilets jaunes is a French phenomenon, yeah. huh? and it has been a bit spilled over in Brussels. Occasionally they come to Belgium, uh, but it was really a French uh, phenomenon. Huh? Um, uh, but, uh, the, if you look at, at these, uh, social implications, uh, brings us also back to the ETS, uh, the free allocation. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have been, uh, in between 2020 and 2030, uh, a big part is already uh, given, uh, at a CO2 price of 60, uh, which is below what we are at the moment. There will be around 350 billion euros be handed out for free to industry. Now, you compare this with the social climate fund, <laughs> uh, then you see the huge distributional impact climate policy have. So the plastering, you know, putting some, some, you know, plaster on, on something is not really helping. You know, structurally, you need to see that everybody benefits and the costs are not unequally divided, which they are through free allocation. I mentioned the 350 a billion. You also should keep in mind that our renewables policy uh, was not uh, very cheap. Uh, in some years, there were 100 billion uh, subsidies given from us as electricity consumers to industry. Altogether, we talk about 500, 600 billion transfer for our renewables policy. Renewables policy, huge success, but it's not cheap uh, and it has to be paid for by someone. At the moment, it's not visible, but as we go, uh, it becomes more visible as we go into these family sectors. Uh, You see, immediately I drive sort of, uh, I have to drive an old diesel and people look at me as a paria <laughs> and here comes my neighbor with his subsidized uh, Tesla. Huh? So you see it more and more coming. Oh, uh, we, uh, you know, my neighbor builds in a heat pump huh? and I have still my oil heating. Huh? I don't have the money to change the oil heating, etc., etc. So these will be uh, the future uh, discussions we're going to have. How can we make First of all, the middle classes, those who have three, four children, buy electrical vehicle where they can food pit all these children and go on holidays, uh, and they cost more. How can the those, the poorer parts of society, also move towards this electrification, which in the longer term will be much more efficient and cheaper? And to conclude and to remain on the longer term, but also returning on the current crisis, I would like to know what are your opinion about the long-term effect on the ETS of the current crisis, especially considering that the fourth phase, the one that we've talked about, is set to end in 2030, and in 2030 there is a new phase, and so a new reform of the ETS. Is it possible to make prediction or speculation? I mean, you can always uh, speculate, but as you know, in in when I'm teaching a class, I always say one thing is for certain and that's uh, projections are always wrong. Huh? <laughs> so I could now project and, uh, and I'm sure I will be wrong. No, but a few things are certain. The first, you mentioned yourselves. The ETS will not end in 2030. There is no sunset clause. Uh, the ETS will be there forever unless 
somebody changes the law. So that's really a very uh, powerful and important element uh, around 2045, depending on what the political decisions are taken. There should be no uh, carbon uh, in the ETS, so they're all, the, the, there is no new allowances. Huh? So what will the EU ETS then be good for? But then what you can imagine that after that, uh, you could use the ETS as a market platform for negative emissions or for removals. These technologies are now coming, are there and as is pilot. By 2030, we probably have a number of negative emissions technologies or removals technologies that will deliver real removal. Certification schemes are being put into place so that we know a ton removed is a ton removed, uh, etc. So I would imagine that uh, after, you know, after 2030, 2035, whatever, there will be uh, a new opening where then you can uh, the, you can trade uh, removal credits mm -hmm. uh, in the ETS, which are equivalent to one ton. Uh, we will also need them because there will always be residual emissions in the industry sector, for example, which is part of the ETS. So these in these residual emissions that are still there, even when you do green steel, uh, will have to be handled, uh, and that would be. Uh, offset, uh, to use that term, which is not completely correct, by by removed uh, carbon. So uh, that I think I would be relatively confident uh, about that. But in between, and that's really a projection, which you know, mm. you know might be wrong. <laughs> uh, in between, I would imagine there will be more uh, sectors or subsectors be fully integrated like parts of the transport, uh, parts of, of the building, maybe everything. There may be areas in uh, construction that you could incorporate or agriculture, but that's really, you know, that needs to be thought uh, through. Uh, we are certainly not yet uh, there. Mm -hmm. uh, let's hope that these changes coming will come sooner than later for the sake of our environment. Uh, thank you, Christian, for being here with us today. It was a pleasure listening to you and talking with you, and I hope it was the same for you. It was a big pleasure to have this conversation uh, with you, uh, and let's just see if you know we hear it in a couple of years, you know <laughs> that we have not been entirely wrong in our projections. <laughs> so thank you for giving me the opportunity. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Julia Altese with the help of Katharina Menke, Philippe Hoister, and the team of Radio Germain, the Sciences Po Students Radio. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen to this episode. If you are an undergrade student and you are interested in the energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po. 